So, um, so last week, uh, we, we had a, a guest preacher slated who ran into a, uh, a, a, a sick child, four-year-old daughter who had a double ear infection and uh, was up all night. So, um, so at about 8 a.m. last Sunday, I started thinking about what I would be preaching, uh, you know, during the service. And the lectionary provided the first passage here, uh, or the first half of this passage in John. And so this is, in some ways, a part two to that sermon that I preached last week. So if you didn't hear last week's and you want to make the full connection of everything that we're talking about this morning, you can check that out wherever you uh, find podcasts. And thank you for the team working on that. So the first verse in this passage here that we have It starts and says, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And as I was thinking about that and pondering those words in this passage this week, there were were three main words that came up as I was pondering those things, thinking about my own life and the the life of our church. Uh, Actually, really four words And those words are appetite, desire, and longing. And that's that we we all have appetites of different kinds, and we have a desire for things to fulfill those appetites. And then we also have some things that seem more in the distant, in the horizon, that could be described as longings, things that that feel like they're harder to grasp, but they kind of touch even a deeper part of our soul than simply uh, our immediate appetites and even the desires that we feel in the present. And when I read this verse in verse 35 of Jesus declaring himself as the bread of life and that those who follow him, come after him, will never go hungry and, and will never be thirsty. I'm thinking about these three words, these words of, of appetite, desire, and longing. And, and then behind and underneath all of this is an idea that we wrestle with every day, and that's satisfaction. Like feeling satisfied in life. Isn't that something that we want? I mean, if you think about the whole Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, that's what the author is wrestling with, is can someone feel satisfaction in this life? Can they feel fulfilled to the point that they're not plagued daily by these appetites, desires, and longings? And uh, it, it makes me think of, uh, of my son, Benjamin, who is seven, and he's been home, not in school, uh, doing homeschool, Zoom school, like, like many children, uh, for the past year and a half. So since March 2020, he's been at home. God bless my wife, Becky, at home with three children and doing virtual school uh, with Benjamin. But Benjamin has started playing Mario uh, it, it, during that time. And there's something that he says a lot whenever it's time to turn Mario off. Can anybody guess what it might be? Just what? How would, how would you finish it? Just a little longer, just 
five more minutes. Just let me beat this boss. I'm trying to get this star right now. Just five more minutes. I see some children's heads nodding. Yes, I can relate to that, right? But you can relate to that too. I mean, I can relate to that. You ever feel that way about other things in life? If I can just get this, this next, Amanda was even talking about it just a minute ago. If I can just get this next uh, leap in my career, if I can just get this next bit of knowledge or understanding for a lot of moms at home, if I could just get one more space of quiet and alone time, if, 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 I could, uh, if I could have one more hit of my preferred drug of something like uh, uh, alcohol or, or sex or whatever it might be, then I would feel satisfied, right? I, I could have a sense, a measure of satisfaction, which we all find out over and over, but it's so hard to believe it doesn't come. You know, Becky and I will ask each other at times, like, so how was your time? You know, and it's always like, well, it was good, but, you know, your time away from me, it was good, but, you know. And so there's, there's this sort of elusive satisfaction that we're all kind of looking for that is a deep desire within each of us. And here's the thing about so many of the things that we look for for satisfaction, it's usually something that helps us escape our life, escape what's going on, the daily existence that we have, rather than to engage it, rather than to engage it. And, and those things are fine. Those, those, those small escapes, or some of them are fine, I guess, but, but they won't result in a life of satisfaction. And I believe a lot of what Jesus is talking about in this passage is that very thing, is how can we get a robust answer to what do we do with these appetites that we've been given, the desires that we have as a result of them and those deep longings within us? How do we have a life of satisfaction? So look with me in verse 41. It says this, at this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, is this not Jesus? The, the, uh, oh, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? It's like, who, who does this guy think he is talking about this? I think about this year is my 20th, high school reunion, my 20th year high school reunion. And uh, um, no woos or claps there. I don't, don't, you know, if it was my 20th anniversary, you'd get that, right? But no, it's, you don't get that from 20th classroom, uh, high school classroom reunion. I don't know about you, but thinking about it, because there's been these little Facebook posts that pop up, I have a lot of of mixed feelings about it. It's like, oh, it's cool. It'd be exciting to see how people are doing. But then I also remember that jerk from ninth grade, is he going to be there? And is it going to somehow be exactly like it was then, right? Like he's still making fun of me for the same things. And I'm still at a loss for words. My 38 year old self who's accomplished amazing things since then and stood, stood up to, to really difficult problems. I'm still, there's still part of me that's like, I hope Hugh's not there. And I hope he doesn't come up and make fun of me like he did on the bus in ninth grade. Anybody feel that? Anybody can relate to that feeling, right? And, 
And there, there's, there's something about this sort of, uh, this idea related to that of, of greatness, of like somebody really uh, striking out and, and, and doing this amazing life that you know really well, right? It's just hard to believe somebody that you've known since you were in diapers or somebody that you went to school with and they, weren't, they were really awkward or they weren't really that cool. There's something about it. It's hard to believe that they could have figured out something really, really important about life because they're too real to you. They're, they're too imperfect to you in, in those types of ways. And I think that this is related to the whole person of Jesus here and why this satisfaction is actually so elusive. It's this idea, I, I, heard, I used to hear it all the time, I hadn't heard it as much in the past several years, but that a professional, I don't know if you've ever heard this, a professional is somebody who comes from at least 200 miles away and carries a briefcase. The, the prophet has no honor in his hometown, right? This whole sort of idea that, if you're too close to something, if you see the wrinkles in it, then it can't possibly be what you need, the answer you're looking for in how to unlock what this life is really all about. This was so much of the struggle in early Christianity of how to see Jesus. This, this idea that Jesus could be both as he's described in this passage, as the bread of heaven, the, the answer to what can create a satisfactory life, a full life with, and he grew up in this little town called Nazareth, and I know his mommy and daddy, right? And so uh, we're struck here with this problem, and it manifested in many ways in different groups as Christianity spread. So I'm about to drop just a short little history bomb on you. Try to stay with me. It's all gonna come back. It's gonna come right back to you today. So this, there was this church heresy. It was deemed a, a heresy in the fourth century. Uh, at the same time, our Bible uh, was canonized um, and it's called uh, uh, Docetism. Probably not pronouncing that right. But it comes from a Greek word, Dokesis, which just means simply to seem. And so this idea was how this group of believers got around the problem of Jesus growing up in Nazareth, because for them, it was a huge problem. And, uh, and for the reasons we've been talking about. And so what they did is they said, well, Jesus showed up as a human being, but he wasn't really human. He just seemed to be human. He was actually kind of like, like a astral projection, ghost Jesus sort of situation. So that he appeared as a human being and he walked around as a human being, but he was only and always this perfect spiritual being. He didn't, he didn't have to grow up he didn't feel pain. He, he wasn't able to be affected by the same trivial things that human beings are affected by. And the strong rebuke that came from the church was that, no, Jesus was absolutely a real human being 
clothed in flesh. He could be wounded. He could have his feelings hurt. He could fall and scrape his knee. He could uh, bust his thumb when he was hammering as a carpenter. And this idea is so incredibly important because see what, what, the, what the church leaders in the ancient times were able to recognize, I think they were able to recognize that if Jesus wasn't really human and he was only this spiritual God being, then that can, that can give us permission to think, well, then the message that he gave, it really was about an escape from reality. Just like, just like the things we think will satisfy us if we get enough, that those things will, will give us the escape that we need from this bad, physical, material place. Are y'all with me? You staying with me? You, you catching what I'm, what I'm putting down right now? It, it would give us this, this false sense of hope, and many of us have dealt with this in our upbringing, this false sense of hope that we can cease to be responsible for our life and this world that we live in, right? And I, I say that with so much energy as Greece is on fire right now. And, and huge parts of the world are, are literally burning. <laughs> we talk about hell, well, it's burning. The world, our physical world is burning because we have failed to think it's our responsibility. And so Jesus here, his very physical presence is a connection, not a disconnection, but a connection to these appetites that we have, these desires and longings, that, that, that this idea that spirituality is, is good and the physical is bad. The life of Jesus as God incarnate denies that way of separating things, that heresy, that those things are not related. So, so you know, um, it, it, it's, it's summarized in this way of thinking. Well, I'm a sinner, but I'm going to um, believe in Jesus to forgive my sins, and then I'll die and go to heaven, and my spirit will float up, and so nothing that I do here has any consequence except for to hold the right name of the right deity, God, in my mind and ask that deity for forgiveness. What a sham. What a sham for what the person of Jesus actually represented, taught, and showed in the world. It was a life of connection, of responsibility. And it makes me think of cats. Yeah, cats, that's right. We have had a whole village of cats in our backyard recently. And uh, I have been strongly opposed to this reality. And my wife and children have uh, been excited about it and haven't really paid me any attention when I say no. They're like, no, but, but really, we're, they, they just talk and plan without me about it. I'm like, no, we can't have all those kittens. And they're like, yeah, but we can, right? I'm like, oh, gosh. So we've got all these cats, and, and, and you know, 
Becky's like, well, I'm gonna give these cats away and we'll just keep a couple of them. And, and at first we're just keeping a couple and now it's more and then it goes back and forth and all this. Well, my son, Benjamin, this is the second round of this whole kitty, kitten litter thing. And the first time, the one my son picked got hit by a car and died early on. So he picks this other cat this time, names it Yellow, and Yellow gets his leg broken. And um, so he's in a cast now. And the Higdons, Ben and Annie, watch Yellow in his cast while we're out of town. And, and, and we come back in town and we're taking care of this cat and he's got the little cone on his head and he looks pitiful. And, and Becky is trying to convince me, I'm, it was my decision, me and the kids will take care of the cat. You can just, you know, do life with us except for the cat, right? And the cat's inside in the kitchen and we're trying to all walk around it in our tiny little kitchen. Then the cat breaks its leg even more. And the cat now has a back leg amputated, right? So he's a tripod. Yellow is a tripod now. I've been calling him chicken wing. He looks like, a, like he has a little chicken wing there because they had to shave, shave his, his fur off to do the surgery. And he's in this huge crate, this like crate that I was carrying it across the yard. And the guy said, this guy who saw me said, uh, you got a pit bull? I'm like, no, I got a kitten. He's like, oh, all right. We'll take care of it then. So, yeah, so this giant crate, and, and I'm exhausted. It's just been nonstop for weeks, and, and, and Becky's like, it's okay. I'm going to take care of the cat. You don't have to do anything, and I'm like, come on. You know that's not the case. You know that is not going to happen. There is no way to separate what's going on with the cat with our lives together, right, and that's exactly the message that Jesus' life presents here. Our actions and how we're responsible for our lives. She's not mad at me. She's going to check on the kids, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the actions that we do here and now, there's no way, and Jesus is not presenting this at all, that what we do here and now somehow we'll be able to dodge the giant pit bull cage in our house with the three-legged cat and that that's the type of message that he's presenting. Just, just believe the right things. Nothing else matters. That is the eternal life that I'm come to present. Absolutely not. The cats. So in verse 43, it says, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. It's a long passage here, but I want us to focus on two verses about 
what he's saying here. So verse 44, he says, and I will raise them up at the last day, meaning the ones who follow Jesus. And in verse 47, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So in these two verses, Jesus is describing what, it, what is the future for this person who has eternal life. It's not that the person, he doesn't, he's not describing a literal immortal existence. Nobody, we don't have to, uh, have to argue about that or talk about that because we all know we watch people die who believe all the time. They don't become immortal. They're not drinking from the fountain of youth, right? They die. And he says, and I will raise them up on the last day, okay? Raise them up bodily, just as Christ was raised up bodily. The implication is that this eternal life, it starts here and now, and it continues here and now. There is no escape from the material. There is no jettisoning off to this disembodied spirit where none of our actions have consequences. And this is a good thing. We were made to do difficult things as human beings. We were made to experience the weight of gravity, to be able to uh, siphon out good out of a challenging and complexing, complex world. This heresy would say that there's this afterlife where, yes, all the physical things are now gone and just some spiritual uh, siphoned out of the physical remains and that's what's good. Anybody, is that, is that the thinking you might've grown up with or heard most of your life? It makes your life so inconsequential in so many ways. In verse 45, uh, Jesus says, everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. So Jesus is describing himself as this singular point into which all of these things converge, that if you are to hear from God, to learn from God, to see God, you're coming to this person of Jesus Christ. So it's not some separate spiritual reality. He's the son of Joseph and Mary and the bread of heaven all at the same time. So what is meant by eternal life here? to tease that apart a little bit more because here's the thing. This is why this matters to you right now today. Not as a Bible scholar, I'm not just trying to fill your head with knowledge and information. That's not, that's not what I do in my preaching. That's not what I wanna do. I could do that. I'm a teacher. But what does it mean for you right here today? How does this affect your appetites today, your desires and the longings that you have that you don't share with almost anybody else? your longings for what you hope for in the future. It matters because if the physical, if what we do now, if it matters, if it's purposeful, if we were given these things not to escape them, but to engage them, then all of those things are essential and important. I wanna share with you this uh, way of talking about eternal life that, that has really helped me think through these things and, and think through it with other people that this um, uh, incredible New Testament scholar, his name's N.T. Wright. He's an Angli Angli Anglican scholar 
who also served as the Bishop of Durham, so in England. So he's, he's very well known. He's written many, many books, um, and many call him the, the foremost New Testament living scholar today. And he, he has thought a lot and engaged a lot with this idea of how eternal life is present throughout all of the New Testament. And this is how he describes it. The reign of grace goes forward at speed towards its goal, which is the life of the age to come, the time when God will usher in the new creation in which all wrongs will be put right. We should note that the normal translation, eternal life, where I have put the life of the age to come, so that's the way he translates eternal life, based on that Greek word, the life of the age to come, gives most modern readers the quite wrong impression that Paul is talking about spending eternity in the world beyond space, time, and matter in heaven. Paul never mentions such an idea. What he has in mind here and elsewhere is the bodily resurrection of God's people to share in the new earth and new heavens, which will result from God's liberation of the present world from decay and corruption. So this is, some, this is from his commentary on the book of Romans, but here's a summary of that idea just in his translation of John 3.16. It says this, so that everyone who believes in him should not be lost, but should share in the life of God's new age, right? So the amazing thing is this, the writer of John is sometimes described as writing a new Genesis, like a new beginning. And that the life of Jesus is the beginning of that process. So that when we think about Jesus coming into the flesh of a human being and living that, it is God saying, this is good. This is important. What you do here, it matters. And I'm starting a new way right now of thinking about that and looking at it. I want you to know you believe in me, you follow me, you're moving into a place where what you think, what you want, the appetites and desires of your life are of eternal consequence. Not just this one little thing that you believe, but your entire life. So that's why it's important for us to know that this is what Jesus said in verse 44. I will raise them up on the last day. So when we take the time to examine what we want, what we're hungry for, what we desire and what we long for. It is not for us to say, God is not concerned about those things, doesn't care about those things, and wishes for us just to move towards this sort of disembodied spiritual future where the physical doesn't matter, where if I'm sad, or if I'm feeling broken, or if I'm uh, at a loss of the use of my legs or 
faculty of my mind that these things are not important and significant in the world. And that Jesus is interested, extremely interested in the reshaping of those longings that you have, those desires that you have. Because what he ushered in was not an easy believism, but a profound and necessary revitalization of purpose in our world, in our actions, in our consequences, your value, the value of other human beings, the value of this world that God is so invested in that he clothed himself in it, that he found it worthy to be a part of, to live and die in. Yeah. So for me, um, the, the desire to stay in my life, to not try to escape it, to not live in a fantasy world, to just think, well, if it was just like this or just like that over there, if I had what they had, or if my family or my marriage or my work situation or whatever it might be, if it could just be like that, then I would have satisfaction. The life of Jesus calls me back wakes me up and says, no, this life that you have, this only one that you got, it matters. And I wanna shape those appetites and desires that you have. I wanna change the longings of your heart, not to get away, not to float off like a ghost, but to ground yourself deep rooted in this reality that you have here in front of you right now. It's the only life you got. So we're about to get an opportunity as we go into communion to ingest within us, to take inside through eating and drinking a, 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 a ritual and a space in which we believe that God is present with us to say, yes, I'm gonna continue on. I wanna follow after you. I'm eating and drinking physically to remind myself of how you entered this physical space and you redeemed it and you called it full of purpose in life. So those things you're doing in your job, in your family, those desires and your longings, whether, whether they feel good or not, those are things that you can give God access to, that, that you can ask God to work in and reshape and to shape and refine within you knowing that what happens in your life matters of eternal consequence. This, is, this, this last uh, saying that I wrote that I want to, to read to you here is about these desires and longings. It's the very last slide, Ben. It says, when we approach the desires and longings of our hearts, we're standing on the cusp of eternity. When we approach within ourselves the desires and longings of our hearts, we're standing on the cusp of eternity and eternal life. Let's pray.